as we are diving in together into this um, final Sunday of the Jesus Revolution and why it's really good news, um, I, I wanted to give a little bit of a recap. So this might be your very first Sunday that you're here. So here's what we've been doing. For seven weeks, we've been exploring seven topics or seven ideas. We've been talking about equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. As most of you know, this series was inspired by a book that I read over the summer by an author named Glenn Scrivener, and the book is called The Air We Breathe. In his book, Glenn Scrivener argues that most people think that these seven values or these seven ideas are really good ideas, that they're actually great ideas. But he also argues that most people don't realize where these values and ideas come from. I'm not sure, personally, that most Canadians realize that these seven ideas, these seven values, are rooted in, inspired by, and deeply connected to Christianity, or what we are calling the Jesus Revolution. And throughout the series, I've read this quote from British author Tom Holland, who says the Jesus Revolution 2,000 years ago has been the most powerful, enduring revolution in history. He says this, quote, 2,020 years after the birth of Christ, we remain the children of the Christian Revolution, the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. Today, we remain the children of the Jesus Revolution. We are living in the echo of that revolution. It's in the air that we breathe. And I hope that throughout the past number of weeks, you and I are beginning to find that that has been true. I hope that Jesus and his revolution has become a pebble in your shoe in a good way. That you cannot stop thinking about Jesus and his impact in the world. Today, we'll move on to our final topic, the topic of progress. So once again, let's follow the breadcrumbs. And if we do, I think they will lead us to Jesus. So as we dive into the topic of progress, some words from the 19th century anti-slavery campaigner, Theodore Parker. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And from God himself, in the book of Revelation, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. God of the universe, we come to you as Father, and we pray, Father, that you would make all things new today. We bring to you our pain, our brokenness, a broken, fractured, fragmented world. We bring to you the pain that we're experiencing in community amongst those we love. And we see brokenness all around us. And we are asking in your mercy, Father, that you would make all things new. And that here in this moment, right here on this Sunday morning in this room, we know you're present. And would you begin to work a restoration, a freedom, a hope in us that we could only point to you and to say thank you. So come, move, empower, heal us, and set us free. Amen. Martin Luther King Jr., in his final speech, the day before he was shot in Memphis, said the following, 
Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Notice that Martin Luther King Jr. had a belief in progress, progress, that truth and justice would march on, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but that it bends towards justice. The day after he spoke these words, he was shot and killed, but he died believing in progress, in a journey towards the promised land, as it were. Barack Obama, in his farewell speech in January 2017, said the following, Our progress has been uneven, but the long sweep of America has been defined by forward motion, a constant widening of our founding creed to embrace all and not just some. Notice his language here. It's forward motion. Forward motion. This past week, writing for The Guardian, Hashi Muhammad congratulated Britain's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, but argued that even though Rishi Sunak is Britain's first prime minister of Asian descent, it's no progressive victory due to his, quote, hardline views. In his mind, it's not progress. Notice that we're all talking about progress. Is this progress? What constitutes progress? Is this a step forward or is this a step back? Is this decision progressive or is it regressive? Just notice that progress is in the air we breathe. We want progress. Now, the right and the left politically have very different definitions of what progress looks like, but we all want it. We all have a vision in our mind of what it looks like to create a better society for the good of all humanity. We have an idea in our minds. But what's a common denominator here amongst all political parties, all walks of life, is that we want to move forward. We want to move forward collectively towards a better world. When people say things like, are we still having this conversation in 2022? The underlying belief is that humanity is supposed to have progressed further than we are now. Am I right? There's an underlying, underlying assumption of progress. Think of the warning, right? Quote, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. The idea here is that history is moving forward. You don't want future people I love future people. They have so much authority in our lives, right? You don't want future people looking back at present people and seeing us as the bad guys, right? Because there's always a bad guy in some movie that's being made about, you know. So in the future, when they make a movie about today, you really don't want to be the bad guy, do you, right? You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I think progress is just in the air that we breathe, right? I think you and I will disagree about what progress looks like for sure, right? Just check out the evening news, right? We, we disagree. But we all agree that progress is good. And our belief in progress is in the, is it the echo, the Jesus revolution. It's in the air we breathe. So let me ask you the question. 
where did we get this idea that progress is good? And here you might be like, okay, Matthew, I was tracking with you for like six weeks, but now this idea, this is like common sense. Like, this is like obvious. Like, why are you even asking the question, right? You're like, of course progress is good. Like, everyone, is, everyone in the room believes it, and hasn't it just been normal throughout history? Well, if you've been tracking in the last number of weeks, you'll probably see what we're about to do here, right? Um, because I don't think progress has been obvious. I don't think the idea that, today, that tomorrow should be better than today has always been obvious. So let's begin by looking at the ancient world. In the ancient world, the past was always better than the present. Did you know that? The past was always better than the present. Greek thinkers thought that there was this golden age that we were now living very far from. Scrivener writes this, the Greek poet Hesiod came up with five periods of human history, descending from golden age to iron age. The only way was down. Catch that. The only way was down. Though perhaps we'd cycle back around to experience the whole unraveling again and again. History is this descent downward, right? It's an unraveling. And if anything, it might pick back up only to unravel again. And I want us to look at a cyclical view of history that was absolutely common throughout the world. Religions that began in India, religions of Indian origin like Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, and Buddhism, they regard time as cyclical and consisting of repeating ages. It's, it's called the wheel of time. Life is a cycle a never-ending, sorrowful wheel of time. John Jameson Carswell Smart writes, writes this. The cyclic view of history, both cosmic and human, has been prevalent among the Hindus and the pre-Christian Greeks, the Chinese, and the Aztecs. More recently, the cyclic view has gained adherence in modern Western society. Now catch this. Although this civilization, he's talking about the West, was originally Christian, that is, was nurtured on a religion that sees time as a one-way flow and not a cyclic one. Did you catch that? Faiths coming out of India, ancient Greek faiths, the, the, the Chinese, the Aztecs, all hold to this cyclic notion of time. But notice that John Jameson Carswell Smart contrasts this view of time as fundamentally different from time as a one-way flow. Time as a one-way flow comes from a Christian worldview, but more on that in a moment. Let me just pause that for a second. In Indian philosophy and religion, liberation is called moksha. It's called moksha. Moksha needs to happen, liberation needs to happen from a cycle of death and rebirth. This endless cycle of death and rebirth, some of you know, is called samsara. History is an endless cycle of death and rebirth, and the goal is your personal moksha, your, your personal liberation from that cycle. Carswell Smart again. The strength of the reincarnationist anxiety can be gauged by the severity of the self-mortification to which they resort to liberate themselves from the sorrowful wheel. So when we look at the world, are we part of a sorrowful wheel of reincarnation, 
The goal in the cyclical worldview is to be liberated from the sorrowful wheel. But my question to you is this, what if history was not cyclical, but was linear? What if history was a line, not a circle, moving toward a goal? What if there was hope that tomorrow could be better than today, not just for my own personal moksha liberation, but for the common good of humanity? Robert Nisbet, the professor of humanities at Columbia, wrote a massive book in 94 entitled The History of the Idea of Progress. The History of the Idea of Progress. In that book, he makes a case that Christianity gave humanity the idea of progress. He argues that Christian theology understood history to be linear and that it was moving towards God's justice. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, is riffing on Nisbet's work when he writes in his book, Making Sense of God, the following. Quote, Nisbet shows that ancient peoples generally saw time and history as cyclical, but especially Christianity gave humanity the idea of progress. Christian theology understood history to be linear, sovereignly controlled by God, moving toward a day of judgment, justice, and the establishment of the peaceable divine kingdom. Can I hit like just a massive pause button here? Like, did you know this? <laughs> Please tell me no, because I felt like, like I was just, I, 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 had, I had heard whispers of this when I was uh, doing my studies years ago, but I had not done a deep, deep dive into this. Did you know this? Did you know that a biblical view of history is a unique contribution to the world? This linear view. What if Judaism and Christianity gave the world a completely different way of understanding time and progress so that today it is so normal to each of us? So let's consider the Bible, let's consider Jesus, and let's consider the Jesus Revolution. John, the apostle, is given a vision, an apocalypse, which really is an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain, and he sees God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And listen to what he hears from the very throne of God. This is God's promise. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they're true. Write it down. That's trustworthy and that's true. John hears from the throne of God, the heartbeat of God, I am making everything new. I want to say that again. I am making everything new. Did you know that in the Greek language, there are two words for new, neos and kainos? Listen to Pastor Pete Hughes explain it. Neos is something brand new, like when you purchase a new car that has never been driven before. Kainos is something old that is made new, like when your car is fixed at the garage and drives like new. When John has a vision of God making all things new, the word he chooses is kainos. And why is that important? Because God is in the business of taking broken, beat up, messed up lives and making them new. It's total renovation. It's a renovation. It's kainos. Think about it. Our world, totally renovated, totally recreated, totally restored and repurposed. It's kainos. It's the business that God is in. 
The heartbeat of God is to make new creation. The heartbeat of God is to make all things new. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. It's a broken world. It's a messed up world. It's a fractured world. And so listen to the Apostle Peter. Remind the church of the one who can make things right. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What what song did we just sing? We sung living hope, right? We're singing it out. We believe that you're the one who has set us free because we have this living hope. It's new birth into a living hope. So an isolated, lonely, sick, politically polarized, angry, violent, hungry, rebellious, broken world needs to hear that message again and again and again. Because of the resurrection, we have new birth into a living hope. One of my favorite quotes comes from N.T. Wright, who uh, is a New Testament theologian. He sat in a London cab where the cab driver said this about Easter. I love this. The way I look at it, he said, is this. If God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all the rest is basically rock and roll. Which I love that. All the rest is rock and roll. It means the future is okay because the future is in the hands of God. He is sovereignly at work. He is moving in our lives. He is making things new. He is working out a new creation. The future is going to be fine because the future is in his hands. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, then all the rest is rock and roll. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then God is making everything new. And Easter morning 2,000 years ago, God started pouring his life upon the world. It's the very morning when God himself crushed death. It's the morning when God reversed the powers of death and evil and sin. And if there was ever any such thing as a sorrowful wheel of time, it got destroyed. It got destroyed, and now God was on the move. As St. John Chrysostom reminded the church in the fourth century, quote, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. You see, Easter morning is the morning where God begins to demolish the old order, the old structure. He begins to tear it down and to bring new life on earth as it is in heaven. Because of Easter morning, we have the hope that tomorrow can be better than today because we have Jesus, because we are part of his revolution. We have hope that the world is moving towards something beautiful. And you need to know the Bible is filled with hope. It's absolutely filled with hope. If you're new to the Bible, it's filled with hope. Let me show you. There's hope that a couple, an old couple named Abraham and Sarah who are childless will have a massive family and people come will come from their own line one day. The hope that God's people in slavery in Egypt would move towards a promised land. They would be set free from slavery and God would guide them to a promised land by his presence. There's hope in the Bible that a king would come to Israel and start to put things back together. Hope from the prophets that said things like this, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. The hope That Jesus' teachings would start like small scattered seed or would be like yeast in the dough, but slowly they would eventually grow and expand and change the world. His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. The hope that spills forth from Jesus' empty tomb because death will not have the last word. And the hope that that martyrdom is not a defeat, but that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The hope that the new heavens and new earth 
are coming. See, for the follower of Jesus, we believe that this train's going somewhere, that it's linear, that we're not stuck in a never-ending sorrowful wheel of history, that actually God is on the move and he's moving one direction. Our best days are not behind us as the ancient world thought. Our, our, our best days are not behind us. We are not trapped in a never-ending cycle of the sorrowful wheel of time. The Jesus revolution is anchored in the fact that we are not stuck. You are not stuck. And I want to give you hope today that you're not stuck. We want to see God do a new work of freedom in your life today. History is moving forward. There is a goal and the future belongs to God because God has said and he's promised, behold, I am making all things new. Progress is a uniquely Christian idea. If you love progress, I think you'll love Jesus. I want to show you a prophetic image of God making all things new. This might seem small, might seem really little and trivial, but I shared this with you about a year and a half ago. I want to show you an image. There are Christians living in downtown Philadelphia that have started doing something interesting. In light of all the gun violence in America, they've decided to take guns off the streets and to break down those guns and to make gardening tools. To make gardening tools. Does that remind you of anything? These are guns that have taken off the streets of America, and they are now gardening tools. And the, the tools are called raw tools, R-A-W, and it's the inverse of war, right? Instead of war, it's raw tools. And Shane Claiborne, who leads this movement, he says this, literally in one hour, we go from a tool that is designed to take life into a tool that is designed to give life. And this isn't random. This hope comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This may seem insignificant. It's just some people breaking some guns down, making gardening tools. What's it going to do? But I think it's a prophetic vision of what God is doing in the world. He's the Prince of Peace. He's bringing his peace on earth as it is in heaven. See, followers of Jesus love this kind of thing because it's a reminder, as Theodore Parker said it, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, I need to clarify something important. This is really crucial. I want to talk about the difference between the myth of a depersonalized progress and the hope of a Christian-filled progress. There's a difference. The myth of a depersonalized progress and a hope-filled Christian progress. Let me explain. There's a myth that exists of a depersonalized progress, which is the belief or the myth that we can have progress without the presence of Jesus. That we can have progress without the person of Jesus. It's what's going on in our culture. We're trying to move forward. Are we getting anywhere? We're trying to move forward. And, and, and I want to make an argument. I think we need Jesus badly for there to be progress. The problem with progress without Jesus is that it's void of forgiveness. There's a void of, of forgiveness there. Now, by the way, I think there's a lot of problems with progress without Jesus. I'm just highlighting one. 
There's no forgiveness. So let me unpack this for a second. If I say to you, follow me, I've got this great idea of what our society looks like as it progresses forward, right? I want you to vote for me. By the way, just a few weeks ago, we had tons of signs all, across, all on the streets, right? Lots of beautiful faces, wonderful people, right? Vote for me, <laughs> vote for me. And uh, they all want our vote because they all have a vision, right? If you ever went to any of their websites or check them out, they have a vision. They said, I know that if you vote for me, I'll be part of trying to make things better, right? So what if I said that to you? I say, follow me. This is the way to progress. Now, but what if, what if you started to follow and then you started to disagree with me about what progress looks like? And, and you know, that, that disagreement might start small, right? But there's something going on there. And maybe not in that week or that month or that year or maybe even in our lifetime, but slowly a divide begins to grow between your understanding of progress and my own. And when we disagree, we have a competing vision and a gulf between us widens. And then all of a sudden, left begins to hate right. And right begins to hate left. And liberal begins to hate conservative, and conservative hates liberal. And the right looks at the left and sees a dismal, horrifying future. And the left looks at the right and sees the exact same thing. And we reach a point where the division is so great that the most loving thing that we can do is fight. We have to now fight for truth and for justice. We have to now fight for progress. And the dangerous thing is that we begin to fight against our fellow image bearers. And the lack of forgiveness and grace and mercy and understanding begins to fly away because Jesus was not at the center of that move. I want to ask you a question. Did you know that in 1933, this is kind of a weird nerdy thing, but in 1933, the Chicago World's Fair used the tagline, the century of progress. 1933, the century of progress, right? Did you know 1933 was the year that Adolf Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany? It was the year that Stalin's gulag was finally implemented. And then think of the rest of the 20th century. Auschwitz, Hiroshima, the killing fields, Chairman Mao's China, Vietnam, Belfast, Sarajevo, Rwanda. I could go on. Is this a century of progress? Was it a century of regression, maybe? See, we try justice on our own and it doesn't work. We try progress on our own and it doesn't work because without the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of the cross of Christ, I don't think we can move forward. Progress and justice in my own hands will lead to violence. I just know it. Because without a vision of Jesus and the cross, our fight for progress becomes a fight against flesh and blood. And the Bible's pretty clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against some powers and principalities of the dark age, right? It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. And this is why Jesus was constantly, in all kinds of ways, think of his parable of the Good Samaritan. He is constantly getting you and I to think of the other as our neighbor. 
He's constantly getting you and I to say, if there's any progress at all, at the, at the center of that will be the forgiveness of sins. And I, and I believe that's why Jesus has to be the center of any move towards progress. He is the center. He is the, he is the wellspring of love and mercy and forgiveness for his enemies. Remember what he said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is an image of absolute sacrificial love and mercy. He has to be the center. He's got to be the center because without Jesus, the Prince of Peace, at the center, then my fight becomes progress that involves violence because I know how to cancel you. Because I know that in the blackness of my heart, I know how to create culture war. That I know how to attack. I know it. I've looked inside. I see the blackness of my own human heart. But I've forgotten that forgiveness is the center of the good news of Jesus. And that I cannot have progress without presence. And I need a vision of the cross of Christ. Are you interested? For those of you who are new to Jesus, are you interested in this? Are you interested in being part of this revolution of forgiveness and mercy and grace, which will be true progress? And see, here's the deal. I believe that if you believe in progress, that if you know at like a gut level that progress is a good idea, that if you believe that tomorrow can be better than today, then I believe you already believe in one of the core beliefs of the Jesus revolution. And if you like progress, I think you will love Jesus. And let me put them all together. I think if you love equality and compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress, I think you will love Jesus. Scrivener writes this. Western society has splintered into, into ever-narrower identity groupings with less and less shared narrative to bind us together. And then he says this. This is huge. The secular river is running dry. Nevertheless, there's hope. Ironically, progress can be found in going back, back to the source. Let's go back to the source, North Langley, and the source is Jesus. His life and teachings are the foundations for love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation. His teachings give life and they set people free and they're a light to our path. For his love is high and it's long and it's wide and it's deep enough to handle and to carry and to just extinguish the hatred of our day. His mercy is powerful enough to break the hardest heart. And his sacrificial love continues to throw the world's hate upside down. He is worth following. He is worth surrendering everything to. Jesus is trustworthy, and I invite you to follow him. In a number of minutes, uh, we're going to take communion now, but in a number of minutes, our prayer team is going to come forward. And here on this seventh week of our series, some of you are at a place where you would like to give your life to Jesus. And I would invite you to come forward. Our prayer team, both at the front and in the prayer room, would be delighted to walk with you in a prayer of what it would look like to give your life to Jesus for the first time. And if you're in that place today, would you come forward and pray with them? Because our secular river is running dry. But here stands Jesus who says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And he's talking about God's very presence coming to live in you. That's the Holy Spirit. There's a well of life of living water for you to drink.
will you come? Or secondly, we're going to come to the cross. Would you take the cup and the bread? And let's prepare our hearts to remember the cross of Christ. Would you just take a quiet moment for all of you who have given your lives to Jesus Christ, this is your moment to come to the table. Let's spend some time in quiet. Jesus, would you prepare our hearts as we come to remember you and your cross? Jesus, as we come to you, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would pour out your spirit again upon us, and that we would see you as we come to the table, that we would see you in all your love and grace once again. Nor thankfully, as we take the bread, a reading from 1 Corinthians 11. This is Paul writing. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Thank you, King Jesus, for life. Thank you for giving your body and shedding your blood that we might be freed and forgiven. Thank you for rising again three days later and crushing death. And we have hope in this place because of the cross and because of the empty tomb. And we pray that in the coming minutes you would make all things new in us. North Langley, let me ask you a question. As we move into a time of ministry here, our prayer teams are going to come forward. We're going to be singing for a while. And it's an opportunity for you and I to to fall at the feet of Christ. I mean, if it's true that he's making all things new, then we want to come. And we want to surrender. And we want to ask him to move. And so I want to ask you a question. In In the words of Andrew Peterson, do we feel the world is broken? We do. Do we feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do we know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. 
And do we wish that we could see it all made new? We do. And so right now, if you want, you can close your eyes. You can spend a moment before the cross of Christ here and before Jesus. And I want to ask you, where do you look around you and see a fractured world? And if you could, would you bring one or two things to mind? We look around us at our broken families, our broken friendships, the financial mess we're in, our sexual brokenness. Maybe it's a lack of justice. Maybe it's a profound loneliness, an addiction. some kind of sickness or suffering or pain, some kind of sin. Do we feel the world is broken? We do. And so right now, would you just hold that thing out before Jesus? You can almost even picture it in your hands, right? You hold it out before the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. And would you just, in a moment of vulnerability, say, would you make this new? King of Kings, would you make this right here new? Make it new. Take it from my hands and make it new. North Langley, I invite you to come boldly to the foot of the cross. Come boldly. Make it new. God of mercy, God of grace, we offer this to you. And would you begin to put it back together? Would you kinos this thing? Renovate it. Rebuild it. And so, God, we are asking for you to come and move, to heal us, to touch our lives and to pour your mercy and grace upon us in a new way today. You see what we're holding in our hands, God, and we offer it to you, and we are just asking for you to just begin to do things that we cannot do ourselves, that you would begin to put things together in a way that we could not take the glory for that. We couldn't take uh, any credit for that, Lord, that it would be you putting it back together. North Angley, as we continue to pray, would you stand? Let's stand together. Let's sing together. Our prayer team is going to come forward. They're going to be up front. Our prayer team is in the back. And as I've said in the last number of weeks, our prayer room is right here. Some of you may need to just as friends sit down and pray for one another. Some of you family members just sit down and pray right there, right where you're at, praying for each other. But our prayer team is here. And so if you've held something before the King of Kings and you want someone to agree with you, you want someone to pray with you for that thing, come forward. Our prayer team is ready to just come alongside you and pray for that thing that you've held out before the King of Kings, that he would make it new. Come forward. They would love to pray with you.
And so, God of the universe, you're here, you're moving, you're in this room. We give you glory, we give you honor, we thank you that we are not caught in a sorrowful wheel, but that we are moving forward because you are sovereign, and you're in charge, and you love us, and we're on your train, a train that's moving towards justice, and love, and forgiveness, and salvation, and a new heavens, and a new earth. History is safe because history is in your hands.